All right, so make sure you're in Isaiah 51. That's our text. The topic this morning, listening to the Lord describe Israel's future stirs up an eagerness in Isaiah to go home. The title of the message, Don't He Make You Want to Go Home? Let's pray. Lord, heaven is our, your home and the earth is your footstool. We see your grandeur, we see your glory, and you've invited us to live in heaven with you for eternity. And you made it, Lord, uh, that we can do it because of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And now, Lord, if we believe that, if we believe him, if we believe you, you'll count it to us as righteousness. And I thank you that so many of uh, my friends and my Christian family, Lord, here have done that. And I pray, Lord, today we would find joy in our hearts and singing, Lord. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, your Holy Spirit is the person who can reach them. He can open their blinded eyes, free their will, Lord, to choose you and to know that they're going to live forever. Help us study your word, Lord. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, amen. Oh, the burden on my back grows heavier with every step, but my heart longs for the celestial city. I press on, for there awaits a home not built by human hands, a place where my soul shall find true rest and eternal joy. The journey is arduous, yet my eagerness to reach the heavenly abode propels me forward, enduring all trials on the path homeward. Call Pilgrim's Progress for short. The full title of John Bunyan's 1678 masterpiece is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. It's an allegory of our walk with the Lord from earth to heaven. The main character is Christian, who is a Christian. He is every Christian. You hear sometimes they say, oh, this, this character is every man. He represents all of us. And so Christian is every Christian. He is, in his own words, eager to reach the heavenly abode. Our passage in Isaiah describes an eagerness to reach the heavenly abode. It's in verse 11. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Christian was eager to go home. Christians ought to be eager to go home. The Apostle Paul was eager. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, he said. The Apostle Peter was eager. He urges us to live to hasten the return of the Lord. How eager are we to go home? I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, let's be eager to go home. And number two, let's be loath to stay here. Let's talk about eagerness in verses 1 through 11. Isaiah's immediate audience was the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken away and destroyed by Assyria. His topics, Isaiah's topics, revolve around them and their promised land and the earthly kingdom. We can see ourselves, the church, in relationship to the events that are discussed. For example, when Isaiah looks into the far future, he sees the return of the Lord establishing his kingdom on earth. He doesn't mention the church, but we know that we're there because we have New Testament verses that speak of our coming with him. And so 
I always want to be careful when we're teaching from the Old Testament. We, we can't apply things to ourselves that don't apply to ourselves. You understand? And, and yet, at the same time, there's something here for us. Uh, we just need to distill it and, and let it uh, mellow out into our hearts. Now, the Lord told Jesus, or the Jews rather, that in approximately 150 years, they were going to be disciplined by God for their idolatry and their spiritual adultery. King Nebuchadnezzar would burn the temple, raise Jerusalem, tear down its walls. The Jews would be captives in Babylon. King Cyrus of Persia would give the Jews their freedom to return to Jerusalem and to return and rebuild. We like to point out every chance we get that in a stunning prophecy, Cyrus is named by Isaiah before he was even born. Take that, Nostradamus. And it's clear, he doesn't, you know, it's not anything weird. He, said, he calls Cyrus by name and he says, this is the king that is going to allow the Jews to go back and support them in building Jerusalem and all. Isaiah is a little like Sam Beckett. He's the scientist leaping through time in the sci-fi classic series, Quantum Leap. We need to pay close attention to Isaiah's leaps to know where he has taken us. Sometimes he describes the Jews returning from, uh, to Jerusalem, rather, from Babylon. Sometimes he describes the suffering of the coming Messiah. Sometimes he describes the Jews in the future great tribulation. Sometimes he describes the 1,000-year kingdom on earth that Jesus will establish at his return to earth. And sometimes he's describing, after that, heaven and eternity. In verses 1 through 8, he's especially jumpy. And so we just need to read carefully. And, you know, when he says things like all the nations will be destroyed or Israel will rule over all nations, he obviously is looking to the future. Uh, and so you can tell where he is in time, but it's a, uh, it requires close reading. And so verse 1, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. There was always a remnant of believing Jews. They were declared righteous by God, by believing in him. They sought God following his precepts. It goes on and he says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. The idiom we would use probably is you're a chip off the old block. Abraham was the block. Verse two, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. When descendants of Abraham look at his storied life, they see the whole plan of God to redeem Jews and Gentiles. One man became as numerous as the sand along the seashore and as the stars in the sky. The Jews might be in captivity, they might suffer terrifically throughout history, but God will prove faithful to Abraham who he called and he will have children as many as the sand in the sea shore and as many as the stars in the sky. For his part, Abraham stumbled at first quite a bit, but as he continued with the Lord, he found his spiritual pace or his spiritual rhythm. So much so that at one point, he would have sacrificed his only son without even questioning God about it. He just had come to the point of, understanding God's voice, hearing God speak to him, knowing what God wanted him to do, and he loaded up and went for it. Like Father Abraham, like his sons, Judah could have that same faith. 
so can we as spiritual sons and daughters. Verse 3, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her uh, wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people, and give me ear to me, O, uh, give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed from me, and I will make justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Peoples and coastlands refer to Gentile nations emanating out from Jerusalem. Uh, the people that are not Jews, and to the end of the earth as it is. Now, this all sounds very kingdom of God on earthish. The Bible tells us Jesus will return to establish a kingdom on the earth that will last a thousand years, sometimes called the millennial kingdom or the millennium, because that's what a thousand is, one a milliannum, a thousand years. His return is at the end of seven years of great tribulation. It says here, Jesus will uh, transform waste places and the wilderness will be like Eden. His rule will be in righteousness, dispensing justice. Jesus will save all who call upon him. And so every now and then in the Bible, but especially in Isaiah, we get clues as to what the kingdom of God on earth is going to be like and some of the restorations that the Lord is going to do and and all. And it's interesting, you know, to think that the waste places and, and the wilderness are going to be as lush and beautiful and, and productive as the Garden of Eden was. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Now, this obviously is a leap farther forward after the thousand-year kingdom the Lord will create new heavens and a new earth that will exist eternally. And so you can read about it in Second uh, Peter, I believe it is. Uh, Peter writes about the destruction of the current earth and universe uh, so that God can uh, re reconstruct and give us new heavens and a new earth forever. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Back from the future, the remnant can encourage themselves by remembering their destiny as opposed to that of unbelievers. Uh, and, and so sometimes, uh, I think Psalm 73 Asaph uh, looks like he has a heart attack, and he starts looking out and saying, how come the wicked are prospering, and I serve you, and I'm on my sick bed? And the Lord shows him that the wicked aren't really prospering in any sense that you want to prosper, because as soon as their life is over, all of their riches and all of their glory and all of their position and all that they are will be gone with them, and they will face eternity. Uh, and, and Asaph, you're going to be in eternity because you're saved. You've believed me. And so uh, we, we want to remember the destiny of the wicked and uh, obviously be encouraged to go to them instead of wallowing in our own sorrow that my neighbor got, has two cars and I only have one or something like that. 
um, or, you know, his pipes are good, but mine aren't, you know, that, and, and just let the Lord minister to you that you're, uh, you know, at, at an advantage always over the unbeliever. Those who follow the Lord will be reproached and insulted on earth. That can hurt, but it doesn't need to. Would you rather unbelieving men praise you or the Lord? And so a lot of, over the years I've noticed a lot of problems that people have at work is that they're not receiving their due. They're not receiving praise. They're not getting the pat on the back. They're not being encouraged. I, I want to say this carefully, but what does it matter if an unbeliever pats you on the back and says you're doing a good job because you're working what? As unto the Lord. You feel like turning around, I know the Lord keeps me on track. And so you're going to be reproached and all. He bore reproaches for you. On the cross throughout his life, Jesus was insulted and reproached and, you know, he was called illegitimate uh, and all of these things. And he bore all that for you. He did that so he could go on the cross, go to the cross and die for your sins. Now it's your turn to bear reproaches for him. And, and so, man, if you're acting like a Christian, doing everything you can to be right, and, all, and people are giving you a hard time, you should be ecstatically happy about that. In fact, if you're really walking with the Lord, you, I mean, you know you are, and you're just giving it your all, uh, but at the same time, nobody's giving you a hard time about it, that could be a bigger problem. Maybe you're going to need to be more vocal or more something because, uh, you know, you are bearing his reproaches. And as Maxwell Smart would say, and loving it, right? So instead of coming and saying, oh, what am I going to do? You say, hey, my boss reproached me today. He yelled at me. He did whatever. I'm loving it. It's great because I know he's doing it because I'm a Christian. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days. In the generations of old, are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Commentators see these three verses as a prayer from Isaiah's cold-touched lips. Is it, though? God's words were like a sermon about the Jews in Bible prophecy. I mean, if you're, if you're just listening to this, this sounds like a really great sermon, uh, a really great Bible study about prophecy. And so Isaiah gets excited. I can't blame him for going full Pentecostal. In saying, can I, instead of saying, can I get an amen, he jumps up and he says, awake, awake, right? That's, that's what I see. He's so excited that, that he wants to let everybody know. Awake, awake, awake. Who does Isaiah think he is to order the Lord who never slumbers or sleeps to awaken? Well, that isn't what he's doing. These are exhorta there are exhortations in the Bible for sleepy, lazy believers to wake up and serve. Keith Green had a bunch of uh, exhortations when he was uh, here before he went to be with the Lord, the Christian musician. And one of our favorites is uh, Jesus rose from the dead you can't even get out of bed. So there are reproaches. There are times when you know, hey, wake up and serve the Lord. But I don't think that's what's happening here because in a minute, the Lord's gonna answer him back and say, you awake. No, you awake. They're going back and forth like that. 
He was asking the Lord to wake up the way our kids might come into us on a Christmas morning and say, get up, it's time to open presents. That ever happened to you? Honey, it's just now midnight. Okay. Honey, it's just now 12.10. Okay. If you get up one more time, no. <laughs> Nemo was super excited. It was the first day of school. Marlon was still asleep. Get up, get up, time for school, time for school, first day of school. Isaiah was excited to go home to Jerusalem and beyond. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Rahab in the Bible is another name for Egypt. The serpent or monster is the better translation, is Pharaoh. The Lord recalls the drying up of the Red Sea that provided the redeemed Hebrews a clear, dry path across. When the Egyptians followed, the water was released, drowning the Egyptian army. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Do we have that eagerness? Well, sure we do. Or we did, and that means we can again. When the Bible ends, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come, and him who hears say, come. And so there, there at least was a time in our lives, right, when we were excited, when we had an eagerness, when we saw the urgency, and it's, it's simply human uh, you know, nature uh, left over in our fleshly bodies that can grow apathetic. You know, some people think, well, you know, the, where's the promise of his coming? I thought the Lord would come before Chuck Smith died, uh, for sure, you know, or Pastor Gene or whoever. Uh, and, you know, why does he delay his coming? And it, it's possible for people to get discouraged or apathetic or all, um, but um, uh, we can recapture that in this initial excitement. We talked about, or Gino talked about first love on Wednesday night, but this is in that same vein. It's like, you know, do, am I eager to go home, my real home in heaven? Uh, part two, let's be loath to stay here. If you've been with us before, you've heard me talk about Jesus coming to resurrect the dead believers of the church age and transform living believers. We call this event the rapture of the church, although it involves more than just the rapture part. It can occur any time, and it will occur prior to the Great Tribulation. It is a pre-tribulation event, the pre-tribulation rapture. We don't hold this position because we want to avoid the terrible persecutions and wrath of uh, the book of the Revelation. We hold it because this is what the Bible teaches. Now, opponents of the pre-tribulation rapture are multiplying, and they're getting more antagonistic. The internet has empowered everyone to be a jerk uh, and just immediately get to yelling at you and telling you terrible things. They're going to try and convince you, for example, that no one in the early church ever believed in such a nonsensical view, but that's just not true. Here's a quote from Irenaeus. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the apostle John, and Irenaeus says he, from time to time, visited John, or at least he knew him and had been with him. And he says in one of his writings that has, uh, you know, survived, when in the end the church will suddenly be caught up from this, then it is said there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning, nor will be. 
seems really clear. Uh, and there are arguments, obviously, you know, but they're not, the arguments don't take these words away. These are the words, and this is what he meant. With the church removed, God focuses on saving the Jews. And that is why the prophet Jeremiah called the Great Tribulation the time of Jacob's trouble. The remainder of this chapter seems mostly set in that future seven-year troubled time. Verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. The Lord's comfort is not food. It's not a favorite banky or binky. It's not a hug with tapping. Those are fine in their own way, especially if your comfort food is spaghetti. No, by comfort, he means preserving his often undeserving people. It isn't anti-Semitic to point out Israel's epic failures in their history. It takes one to know one. Verse 12, who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of a man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. You have feared continuously every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? Fury is a terrifying description applicable to Satan's efforts against Israel in the time of Jacob's trouble. He's depicted in the book of the Revelation as a great red dragon wanting to devour Jesus as he's being born. And he's depicted as a flood in his efforts to kill every last Jew to thwart the return of the Lord. Fear of any man, fear of anything at all besides God is irrational for a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying I'm not afraid of things. I'm afraid of everything. Pam will say, hey, here's something in the backyard. I go, well, let me know what it is. <laughs> Last night, she, she, you know, and, and weird things happen in our backyard because we have cats, you know. Man, cats, they're scary. You know, for a half an hour, I've been practicing. But uh, she said, I think I hear screaming in the backyard. And I go, okay. What do you want me to do about it? That's why God invented policemen. I mean, you know, just you handle it. But uh, so, but the thing is, I mean, when you read the Bible, you think, oh, yeah, I have nothing to fear from man or anything else. Why? Because the worst thing you face is death. And Jesus has faced that down for you. And to, to die is to gain. Any believer that dies gains, gains eternal life, gains heaven, gains their heavenly rewards, all of those things. And so uh, the Lord reminds us all the time, he says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. You're gonna suffer. In some cases, your suffering will be extreme. I've been thinking about what the apostle Paul said, Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This present time, is it just a season in your life? Is it just the trial you're going through? I don't think so, because right after this verse, Paul brings up creation in the next two verses. He's thinking from creation until now. And so all of human history from the fig to now, we get overwhelmed by pain 
but it is nothing when you consider heaven. And so Paul says, hey, this whole time is going to be suffering on different levels because the planet has fallen, the creation has fallen, man has fallen. Sin is, this is what sin does. Uh, you know, people talk about death with dignity, right? And I understand that, and we should treat everyone in a dignified way. But when you've watched people die, it's not dignified. It's, it's an ugly thing. And you know what it is? It's sin. You say, hey, you know, this is sin. This is not that person's sin. It's sin that is responsible for that. And so that's been conquered. And so people, that's why, you know, not why the martyrs came, but the martyrs go to, to you know, to be killed, and it's, God gives them grace, and it's like, hey, we're going to die. Woo-hoo! It's going to hurt, and that's, I don't like that, you know. I mean, I, you know, the dying is not so crazy, you know, good, but we're going to die, and I think that's good. Verse 14, the captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. The Jews would be captive exiles in Babylon. This describes their fear that they were headed towards extinction. They were ignoring the Lord's prophecies and promises that the nation could never become extinct. The destiny of the entire human race depended upon God working through them. The Messiah must come through Israel. And so they're worried that they're going to go extinct, but it's impossible for that to happen. I mean, I guess it could get down to, you know, a couple of Jews on the planet, but they cannot go extinct. And, you know, um, I guess I'm sure there are other nations over time, but think if you're Israel and everybody wants to extinguish you. I mean, you're like right now, they're in their land. They've been there since 1948. And they go to the negotiating table with people who say, what we want is to kill every last one of you so that none of you exists anymore. Uh, are you willing to compromise on that? No. Who's serving lunch at this conference? You know, that kind of, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. And so that's how they've lived for the longest time. They cannot go extinct. But I am the Lord, verse 15, your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hosts, as you know, is armies. He says, I have put my words in your mouth, I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. Like Fival Mouskowitz, God had a plan. It was to have a special set-apart nation to share his words with the Gentile nations. He protected them with his hosts, and he shaded them when necessary, meaning he just took care of them. Planning the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth was a preliminary and temporary project. The Lord required a workshop to work on his people. Some of you guys who like tools and can actually build things, you can fix things and build things, and you like tinkering and getting your hands dirty and all, that's great. I wish I could do that. Not really, but I do. Your wife says, you know, honey, I, I need you to do the, you know, I want you to build a couple things. Oh, like what? Like a second story to the house, that should be easy, right? Just, you know, or maybe this or maybe that. And you say, well, I'm going to need some tools. I'm going to need a shop to put them in. So, you know, and then, you know, you get this all decked out man cave shop and all that kind of stuff. Well, the, the Lord says, you know what? We're going we're gonna to have a race of, of people. I'm going to create them there. You know, here's what's going to happen. We need a workshop in which to do this. So let's, let's create a universe. 
let's throw a universe out there with the you know millions of this and billions of that, and then the Earth right there where we can work on creating these people. Verse 17, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. Now who's excited? The Lord pictures himself waking up a slumbering child so that they don't miss the celebration. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Has any people group suffered for practically their entire existence more than the nation of Israel? In the future seven years, God pours out wrath upon their oppressors. I tend to forget that Jerusalem is going to be attacked by the Antichrist just prior to the Lord's return to earth. A description of that can be found in the 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. I hadn't read that in a long time. Man, it is ugly what's going to happen right at the end as Jesus returns and the Jews and all. But uh, God will have been pouring his wrath out upon unbelievers, upon those who hate the Jews, and that'll be the last of it. Remember I told you Isaiah leaps? He says here that that's going to be the end of it. Uh, once you get to the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's not going to have those problems anymore. And so you know, Jesus returns, and once again he saves his People. Verse 18, there is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the song, uh, sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Only one-third of the Jews on earth in the future tribulation will survive uh, to be saved and to uh, believe the Lord. And so it's going to be a devastating time, a terrible time. Every now and then, uh, some of these other positions on the rapture or whatever, end times positions, people tell me that they believe the church will be here for the tribulation. No, they don't. Because you would be doing a lot differently if you were believing that. So basically, they're just like us. Uh, you know, they say, oh, yeah, I believe, uh, you know, we, we should uh, you know, minister to people and share the gospel and all that, uh, but we're also going to go through the tribulation. I mean, you would be making some preparations, like in a bunker, you know, and launch out from there or storing up food. And I'm not saying if you do that, you're wrong. I mean, those are good ideas you know, and stuff, but nobody, it, this becomes a theological discussion to them nobody's thinking, hey, do I have what I need to get through or get into the great tribulation since we're going to go through it? We're not. Uh, and so uh, don't think about it. Uh, verse 21, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. This makes me think of Hannah weeping in the temple uh, because she was childless. Eli thought she was drunk and started to rebuke her. And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm not drunk. Uh, I'm in sorrow. Verse 22, thus says the Lord, your God, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you, and you will have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over. This describes a death and destruction so great that 
the bodies are lying in the street and you're just walking on them. It's like the, all the stories you read about where they discover a mass grave or something like that. It's just disgusting. Uh, er, Isaiah's earlier shout-out lasted about 30 seconds. It occupies three verses. The Lord's encouragement occupies 20. Maybe we should listen more. You must have noticed that the Lord tells the Jews to listen three times, verses 1, 4, and 7, so that's where he's at. A.W. Tozer had plenty to say about listening. He prefaced it by saying, the Bible will never be a living book to us until we are convinced that God is articulate in his universe. Did a silent God suddenly begin, uh, begin to speak in a book, and when the book was finished, lapsed back into silence again forever? Now, I'm smart because whenever I want to say something really controversial, I quote somebody else, somebody spiritual. So if I just get up here and say, you know, the Lord didn't only speak in his Bible. I mean, he still speaks to What just happened? Pastor Gene became a heretic in front of my very eyes. But if A.W. Tozer said it eloquently and beautifully, you think, yeah, yeah. God wasn't in heaven. He said, hey, I'm going to write a book. And, you know, and, and these guys are going to read it, and that, that's, that's my responsibility's over. Uh, I, don't, I don't need to talk to them, do I? Uh, no, I mean, so the idea is that God's always communicating. One of the Bible says I remember from being a young Christian, uh, it was Pastor Chuck, and he said, you know, God wants to speak to you all the time. And he suggested a different way. He said, you know, um, maybe as you, in similes and metaphors and illustrations and stuff. So maybe you, you're out, you know, going somewhere and you see something in nature or you see something and these connections start getting made. You say, oh, God, you know, is doing this or doing that. I know one of the reasons we're here in Hanford is because the Lord showed uh, Pam something while we were driving home uh, from here one time. And uh, she, she just, it was just a kind of a simile, like, you know, this is going to be like that and stuff. And so you need to cultivate an ear for that. God's never going to say anything that contradicts the Bible and, and uh, you know, that kind of a thing. We don't need to worry about that. He's given us his word, and we encounter him in his word. Uh, let's talk about Tozer for a minute again, and maybe this will help you. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting Alan Redpath. He had come for a Calvary Pastors Conference many years ago. If you don't know Redpath, he's a British dude uh, who's written some books that are great. He uh, pastored Moody Church in Chicago, and when he got to Chicago, Tozer was there pastoring a Christian missionary in Alliance Church, I think it was, and he reached out to him and said, hey, if you ever want to get together, and so Redpath said, sure, and so Tozer said, well, I'm always here at this one place when the weather was allowable, someplace on the shore there, and uh, you're welcome to come anytime, and I remember Redpath saying he went, but he only went a few times because he felt like he was interrupting something magnificent going on between God and one of his sons. There was just an intimacy and a, and a, a thing there about Tozer waiting on the Lord. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, God still speaks. Now, sometimes we blame God. Um, you know, and we say, you know, a lot of times Christians say, oh, the, the Lord told me, and then they, you know. So, so people come to me or to you, and they'll say, Gene, what do you think about this? Because the Lord told me this. If the Lord told you that, what do you care? <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess I have to agree with you, no. Uh, and so, so it's not that kind of speaking. It, it's a kind of leading. It's a kind of, hey, this verse jumped out at me. You want to get started on this? Spend time with the Lord alone. And you know what? And really, that's on him. 
If the Lord says, hey, I wanna spend time with you, I wanna speak to you, you don't need to buy a book on how to spend time with the Lord and speak to him because he said, that's what I wanna do, so you come to me and I'll teach you. You know, it's on me, so come to me. I would recommend, since the word is the way we most often relate to God, what works for me and for a lot of people is repetitive reading. And so if you're reading, it's great. Read through the Bible in a year or in 10 minutes, whatever plan you're on, you know. I just discovered a few years ago you could fast forward YouTube. Did you know you can listen at a higher speed? All of a sudden, you're talking like this. Some people, I, some people talk so slow, you get them to almost twice their normal speed just to sound normal, you know. But anyway, uh, you know, get alone with the Lord and read the word. You do your devotional reading, but then take a section of scripture and just keep reading it. Read it, read it, read it. Throughout the day, read it. Next day, read it and stuff. You'll start seeing things. You just will. You'll see words that are repeated like, listen. Oh, the Lord wants me to listen. And then listen to what? And, stuff. And, it, and the Lord begins to cultivate in you what it means to hear from him. He's a person that lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And he said, Gene, I want to spend time with you. I want to talk with you. I want to show you things. And so, okay, Lord, then that's all on you. I just need to show up, right? You know, have you ever done something and say, what do you want from me? You just need to be there. You don't have to do anything, just show up. And so the Lord, in this case, he's a, hey, just show up. If you show up, I'm there, and you and I will figure out together how you can hear my voice and be led by me in a genuine way, in a way that humbles you before men and uh, makes you more like John the Baptist that Dennis was singing about in his humility and all the greatest man who ever lived.